Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Welcome to the show, Barry Wolf. Thanks so much, Victor. Very excited to be joining you. Great to have you here. Now, Barry, you work with Marcus and Melichap principally on the retail side, not something we've talked a lot about in terms of someone who's actively in the game day in, day out. Why don't you give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got into this particular segment? No, uh, happy, happy to. So I started in the business back in 1993. I was actually an attorney for eight years before I got in the brokerage business, and I've been doing this since 2001. Uh, but when I was an attorney, I was working on the retail side. I was doing commercial uh, real estate leasing, contracts, and Principally, I was working with a number of different retailers. Back then, we had several de- developers we were working with that were Kmart developers and Walmart developers. Or kind of, it kind of dates me, but back then, Kmart and Walmart were neck and neck uh, as far as who were the behemoths in the retail sector. And also worked with a number of different restaurant chains: uh, Ruby Tuesday, Longhorn Steakhouse, and Panera Bread, and some others. And went in-house uh, with a retailer, Aaron's Inc., uh, which is a public company based in Atlanta, where I was living at the time. So really a retail focus. And then when I got in the brokerage side back in 2001, decided to leave the legal field, decided to stay on the retail side because that's that's all I knew. Uh, that's what I've been doing my entire career and, and have been doing it ever since. I love that. So obviously there's a, so much being written about what's happening in retail right now. The headlines are stunning. People talking about the retail apocalypse. And I don't believe there's an apocalypse, but there's certainly a shrinkage of that industry. What's your perspective? What are you seeing? I I agree with your statement. I mean, we've been hearing about the retail apocalypse long before COVID, uh, really for the last several years. Significant number of store closures, uh, some retailer bankruptcies, certainly. And COVID has only accelerated that uh, in reality. I mean, Amazon announced yesterday blowout earnings, which were not surprising. Uh, For the last three to four months, we've all been forced in our homes and therefore tremendous amount of online shopping, uh, which is a, you know, we're only enhancing that habit that we've been doing for the last number of years. And therefore that's, that's negatively impacting a lot of traditional brick and mortar retailers. So it's certainly, I still agree with you. It's not an apocalypse, but the pace of evolution has certainly accelerated over the course of this COVID period. And there's going to be more fallout. I mean, we're going to see more retailers go under uh, in 2020 than we would have if not for COVID. And it's a challenge. I mean, it's certainly a challenging time for the retail sector and for retailers in general. I mean, that's, that's really a given, obviously. Absolutely. When I look at my email feed every day, I get 15, 20 emails for various sometimes shopping malls, sometimes single retailers, whether it's a Panera Bread or a Walgreens or a bank, um, seeing a lot of these single tenant commercial properties coming up for sale and the volume of these properties definitely coming up. Now, they're not showing up as distressed, but clearly there's people looking to looking to divest. What are you seeing? I think there's always people looking to divest, whether that's merchant builders or tenants even under sale leasebacks, which is where they are selling real estate they occupy. So there's, there's always reasons people are looking to sell. Uh, that that doesn't change a whole lot over time. Uh, so I don't know that we've seen it accelerate over the last few months, but it, it's maintaining itself and we're still moving a lot of deals. We've got a number of deals we've been We've closed, I think, 14 or 15 properties in the last couple of months and got you know, a number more under contract. And by we, you know, just myself and my my team, 
So we're staying very active. I think the industry is staying active. Velocity is off to a degree compared to the last couple of years, which were record years. But no, I mean, the market is maintaining itself. And like you said, we are certainly still seeing deals marketed. And I really, I'm not seeing any distressed deals out there yet. I think we will eventually see some and more vacant buildings coming to the market, but not so, not yet. I think it's a little early for that so far. Of course, in the retail space, one of the challenges, unlike, say, a multifamily apartment, I know if I have a vacant apartment, I'll be able to rent that maybe in a month or two. But for a retail space, you're looking for that ideal client, that person that's going to be willing to occupy that space for five or 10 years. We're talking about tenant improvements. We're talking about customizing the space specifically for that business. And with that in mind, you can have extended periods of vacancy until you find that perfect client. What Have you seen vacancy periods extending? Have you, what, what are you seeing? Again, I think it's too early to tell. Uh, We haven't yet. Uh, I mean, obviously, we're certainly seeing some tick ups in vacancies and certain markets, you know, a fairly noticeable increase in vacancies. I mean, I do remember in the, you know, the Great Recession, uh, where I live, I mean, I saw, you know, boxes or former restaurants that might have sat vacant for a couple of years uh, that normally would have turned over much quicker than that. I expect to see something sort of similar to that. I mean, I do think we'll see an extended period that some of these you know, boxes or vacancies do take to get back filled. But at the same time, we're also seeing new concepts coming along. I mean, there's people that are being forced into new ideas and new businesses. So I think we're, I, I'm hearing that too, where you know, retailers or leasing agents I'm talking to are seeing a lot of new new concepts and new folks coming into the market to lease space. So that's a positive, but yes, we're, we're probably going to see some, some extended periods of time to backfill some of these vacancies as, they, as we do see increasing numbers of vacancies out there in the, in the next six to 12 months. We've seen a tremendous amount of pain, certainly in hospitality and in food and beverage. I personally know of a number of restaurants that are closing down. My feeling is that when this is all over and we return to some sense of whatever that new normal is going to be, that those restaurants, the few that remain, are going to be doing a bang-up business. I think they're just going to be overrun with demand. What What do you think? I, I agree with you. I think those that survive will thrive. I think they need to evolve. They need to continue adapting and uh, with you know curbside pickup and takeout. But no, I, I agree with you. There will there's obviously going to be fallout in the sector. Uh, so not everybody is going to make it. So that I, I think when this is all over, we're going to be as a society back to eating out as frequently as we were pre-COVID. And for the first time in history in the U.S., restaurant dining or to, you know, dining outside the home, sales were greater than grocery sales. I expect that to, I think we will go back to that again. So I do think we're going to see a tremendous uptick compared to right now in dining, you know, in restaurant establishments. So yes, I agree with you. If there's some fallout, which we expect to see, those that, you know, survive and adapt and that they will thrive again. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. When I travel, for example, in Japan or Korea, what I find is that, number one, apartments are smaller. People don't entertain in their home. And in fact, they rarely cook at home. They often will grab takeout on the way home. They will, If they're entertaining, they will entertain typically in a restaurant. I'm wondering if we're going to actually evolve a little bit more in that direction. I, I think so. I mean, I, I was pre-COVID, I was talking about that as far as, you know, the need again for casual dining and even quick serve to get better at takeout. Because uh, I, I think that's the, no, I agree with you. I think that's the norm we're evolving to. And I think even more so 
coming out of this, you're going to have even more two-income families where if the both you know the husband and the wife or the parents are are out you know, outside the home. So I think just grabbing a quick meal on the way home. I know my my family we get to go quite often. I mean we're not we're getting takeout far more than we're cooking at home. Uh, I, I think that's, a, I used to think that was an oddity that we were the outlier. And I'm, you know, I think, frankly, it's kind of become the norm, uh, at least leading into COVID. And I, I think we'll be back to that again. So I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, ghost kitchens are another concept that we're seeing just barely starting to pop up um, here in the U.S. And I think we're going to see that explode in the coming years, you know, next couple of years as well. I think so, too. In fact, uh, Travis Kalanick founder of Uber has secured a significant round of financing, I think out of Saudi Arabia, specifically to fund ghost kitchens. Now, I don't know that he's necessarily going to need to go source brand new kitchens, although I know he's got a formula, but there's going to be a lot of distressed assets available on the market for pennies on the dollar for people to establish ghost kitchens in lower cost locations. Doesn't have to be that uh, prime retail space at you know, $45, $65 a square foot triple net. It could be industrial space at 8 bucks a square foot. And I think, you know, that's going to be an interesting play. It's going to be an interesting evolution of the food and beverage industry. Hey, absolutely. I think that's the next evolution we have coming. And like you said, exactly. Where it doesn't need to be at $30, $40, $50 a foot space. It can be off the main and main corridor back in an industrial park at 8 to 10 to $15 a foot foot and you know shared space so now I, I i love the concept personally where you know as a family we all like different foods which is pretty much the norm so if i could order from you know an uber or another ghost kitchen and i i get a sandwich and my wife gets italian and one of my kids get you know some sort of chicken sandwich and you, know, you get the idea where everybody can get what they want it's all quality hopefully it's healthy and instead of just grabbing you know from one particular spot everybody gets what they want and so i i think conceptually it's a fantastic idea that I think has got phenomenal legs to it. I mean, even pre-COVID, I was very, very bullish on ghost kitchens and even more so now I am. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the banking industry. You know, we went through the financial crisis, a lot of banks closed down, a lot of consolidation. Over the past decade, we've seen an explosion of a lot of banks opening new branches. And I'm now that, you know, we're conducting almost all the transactions online now, you can deposit checks online. The number of times I need to go into a physical branch has diminished significantly. Are we going to be seeing a lot of those bank branches disappear, smaller footprints? What do you think is going to happen to that particular segment? I, I think so, yes. Um, and we've been seeing net negative as far as declining number of branches for the last several years. I think that's going to accelerate uh, as technology grows. I mean, I one of my daughters, I mean, every time she gets a check-in with where she works, I mean, she just scans it on her phone. She does. She wouldn't know how to go into a bank. I, I don't really go into the bank anymore either. So now I, I agree with you entirely. The banks don't even want you to go into the bank anymore. So no, I think you're going to see a tremendous you know, decline in the number of bank branches. The positive is a lot of these are at you know hard corner, lit intersection, really good real estate. So there's spaces that I think have you know tremendous upside for repositioning. Some of them, the rents were fairly high, so that becomes an issue. Can you backfill at the, the same rental rate or not? Um, so some of those might go backward from an income standpoint. But now I, I agree with you entirely. I think we're going to see a tremendous number of bank branches uh, repositioned and um, backfilled here in the next couple of years. One of the things I see, some of the, I'll say, dying malls, whether you know they're the 1960s, 1970s, 
retail malls that are they don't fit today's model. The footprints are wrong, the the corridors are wrong. The only thing they have going for them they're on a large parcel of land with a lot of parking. My view they're ripe for redevelopment. You know, in land there's two ways to make money. You take raw land, you carve it up, or you take uh, um, land that's already been developed and you assemble it out of smaller pieces. Now, shopping malls are a rare exception to that where you already have a very large land assembly that you could potentially redevelop if the numbers aren't working for retail. What are you seeing in terms of those kind of redevelopment opportunities? Are you seeing an acceleration of that? Not yet. Um, I I think the, I'd say the pain is coming. I mean, we're seeing, you know, a number of the box retailers have been you know, going into bankruptcy and facing their challenges, although you're seeing Simon and other groups actually buying up some of these retailers, so that may slow down that process. But I think you're going to see, I mean, it's, I think more at first will be in the secondary and tertiary markets where the malls just don't really have a purpose any longer and they've really gotten quite dated. And then the question is, what do those get back, you know, repositioned as? And the more primary markets, I agree with you. I mean, it could be fantastic repositioning opportunities, whether that's for multifamily or you know, that plus maybe green space. So I, I, I do think we will see an increasing number of malls get repositioned, but I think it's going to be a multi-year, if not multi-decade process. I don't think it's going to be overnight where all of a sudden, three years from now, tremendous numbers of malls across the landscape are now multifamily projects or green space or, or whatever it might be. It's, this is not going to be a fast process, I don't believe. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. Well, Barry, if folks want to learn more, if they want to get in touch, what's the best way? Probably the best way is on LinkedIn. Um, I'm active on there as, as you are. That'd probably be the easiest way to, to reach out to me. Just look me up on there. Shoot me a, a DM, direct message, or my email's on my profile also, um, as, as well as my phone number. So feel free to reach out to me. But that'd probably be the easiest way to, to get in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Barry. He's Barry Wolf, W-O-L-F-E, on LinkedIn. And have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.